Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Delian, how are you doing this morning? Doing good. Excited to uh, excited to chat today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Do you mind giving a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Um, so, you know, sort of uh, sped up, you know, version of my background. I was originally born in Bulgaria, uh, moved out to the United States with my parents when I was, you know, a kid. Uh, you know, kind of bounced around around the United States. Eventually, ended up at MIT, thinking that I was going to become an academic. Uh, instead, I sort of took a hard left turn, and you know, after sophomore year, ended up you know dropping out of school to make my way off to uh, you know Silicon Valley. Uh, founded my first company, which is like an enterprise healthcare company. Went through you know YC Summer 14 with it. Uh, ran it for about three and a half, four years. We kind of got to ramen profitability, but you know, it sort of never grew fast enough to raise a Series A. And then uh, went off and became uh, after you know shutting down the company, became the VP of growth at this company called Teespring, which is another YC company. Uh, and then ended up switching over to the investor side of things. I've been an investor now for about five years or so. Uh, first two years of that over at Coastal Ventures with Beno Coastla, and then the last you know three years or so uh, over here at uh, Founders Fund, uh, and mostly focused uh, you know in those five years on um, you know investing in sort of seed Series A, uh, and mostly in what I call you know sort of just anything but not, uh, you know boring software. Uh, so no consumer social, no enterprise SaaS, uh, nothing like that, but everything from like regulated industries like healthcare tech, fintech, insure tech. Um, you know, as well as a lot in the world of call, you know, deep tech, you know, hardware. So everything from like aerospace, industrial automation, robotics, home construction. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I really, in some ways, you know, like about venture is that it's one of the you know, few jobs where as an adult, you actually still get paid to, you know, continue to learn. Uh, and so, you know, over the course of, you know, my time in venture, I've gotten to, you know, dive into a variety of different, you know, fascinating areas. Uh, you know, I think partially from spending some time with, uh, you know, one of my primary mentors, Keith Raboy, uh, who's also on the board of, uh, or is one of the founders of Open Door, learned a lot about sort of the like, you know, real estate industry and in particular, which is like fascinated with how inefficient like single family home construction was. And so, you know, a couple of years back, I was fascinated with the idea of like, you know, why, you know, why is sort of, you know, why are single family homes inflationary? But if you look at almost every other consumer good, they're extremely deflationary, right? Phones, TVs, et cetera. And most of the reason being that like, you know, most of the things that are deflationary have largely been produced on sort of automated, you know, assembly lines. Uh, and so why hadn't anybody, you know, taken that same approach uh, and done it with homes? Uh, turns out, you know, homes have a lot more SKUs in them. So it's a little, you know, more difficult. And, you know, the thing is, uh, a home is much more difficult to, you know, deliver, you know, fully finished. Uh, and so, you know, in like an automotive line, um, you know, uh, when you're, you know, assembling a car, uh, there's a few different sort of like sub-assembly lines. And then there's, you know, the sort of the final assembly line known as like the general, you know, assembly line. Uh, you know, in homes, the general assembly line has to happen on site in the middle of, you know, the outdoors, the wild, you know, sort of conditions can't happen on a factory floor. And so there's a ton of different, you know, difficulties that, you know, come with that. And so I ended up getting fascinated with that whole field that I got to invest in this company, uh, you know, Cover, uh, which is based out in L.A., um, and so it's been fun to, you know, see that, you know, as my, you know, fascinations shift over time, um, I'm able to, you know, then invest in the company and move on to the next fascination. So, uh, you know, right now I spend a lot of my time, you know, in aerospace trying to think about, okay, how do you sort of, you know, take this infrastructure that, you know, honestly, mostly Elon has built uh, and, you know, that infrastructure being the equivalent of 
you know, AWS in 2008. And, you know, now you've got this great infrastructure, so you don't have to build your own data centers. What are the interesting, you know, applications you can do on top of it when you don't have to build your own data center, i.e. your own rocket. And so working on that myself, you know, in the space manufacturing world at Varda, uh, but then, you know, also excited to be investing in companies like Hadrian, Impulse Space, other people sort of building on top of that, you know, infrastructure um, to, you know, provide those next generation use cases. Uh, one of the other areas that I'm particularly fascinated uh, by right now, uh, in particular, because I'm sort of in the thick of it, you know, myself is the world of sort of like IVF, fertility, surrogacy, you know, how to sort of encourage, um, you know, the uh, replacement rate of, you know, um, Western countries not being below two. Uh, you know, right now, the, you know, average, you know, child rearing rate uh, in, in the United States uh, is actually below, um, you know, our death rate. And so, uh, uh, really fascinated by, you know, the various companies that are working on trying to, you know, make that, you know, easier, everything from, you know, obviously post child being born and, you know, the homeschooling world all the way back to, you know, embryonic, you know, sequencing, polygenic risk scoring, you know, surrogacy, uh, you know, brokers, um, you know, IVF, you know, facilities. And so that's one area that I'm spending a decent amount of time on. So, yeah, it's a multivaried, you know, interests and areas that I like, you know, diving into, but I like the things that are, you know, sort of uh, the things that actually, you know, shape society, but are, you know, super inefficient. And, you know, right now, everything from, you know, housing costs to, uh, you know, babies are probably the uh, the current fascinations. That's great. That's great. I, I'm curious, how do you pick, um, you know, area, problem areas to explore? Is it just you look at, uh, is it like a top down approach where you look at the biggest problems facing humanity right now, you know, like, RTO, like we, we, we're below replacement in the West or like housing prices, just insane explosion in, in the price of housing in the US? Uh, do you just see a problem and then go down and try and figure out why and where people are building solutions? Or is it just more ad hoc? You like you see a company, okay, like, wow, that's super interesting. Uh, let's go investigate. And then you go up to the broader problem. Yeah, I think I think I tend to be more of like a bottoms up thinker than a you know tops down. You know, I think there are people in the world. You know, how people even at my firm, let's say, like you know, I think the, the Peter Thiels of the world are very much top down macro. You know, under you know sort of uh, provide these you know sort of general and overarching you know frameworks that I think about the world. And I think I take a very sort of opposite approach with just like how I get fascinated with problems and you know where you know where I you know gravitate towards. In that you know in the world of like, you know, IVF, fertility, et cetera, is mostly just like myself going through the process as a user, uh, you know, is the fascination with, you know, home construction. It was honestly just like, you know, seeing, you know, John Jaffe from Lennar, he's the president of Lennar, which is the, you know, the largest home builder in the United States. Um, and, you know, him, you know, talking about, you know, how they construct homes, the difficulties of that. Uh, and then, you know, I think it's, you know, I sort of get these like, you know, brain worms in my head where I'm like, oh, that's like super interesting. And then I end up spending like the next three weeks talking to every single like home building, you know, expert digging into, you know, every single company. So I it's a little bit more, you know, bottoms up ADD curiosity. I can't just help, but, you know, scratch, you know, scratch the itch. And sometimes I get an itch and it's like, it's not that interesting of a solution. And like, you know, you know, they're like, you know, that interesting of a problem or something that can actually be fixed. And sometimes you ended up discovering like, oh my God, this is actually like a really big problem and people are kind of talking about it, but like, you know, not nearly enough. Um, so I'd say like, you know, fertility is one of those things. It's been interesting to see, like, for example, like Elon has now tweeted, I think like twice in the past, like six months about like, you know, people needing to have more kids. So it does feel like it's starting to get a little bit more attention. Um, but, you know, even a year or two ago, it still felt like one of these topics that was, you know, under discussed, I the you know, sort of Western fertility rate. Absolutely. And, and it seems like, you know, there are a lot of problems like this that just go completely unnoticed in society. I just had an academic on from AEI yesterday who um, works on this this crazy fact that 7 million U.S. American men don't have a job, aren't in education, aren't doing anything. And it's just like completely ignored. Like no one's talking about this, like this huge like problem. Um, I, I'm curious, how do you get up to speed in an area? Do you have like a systemic process where you like call an expert first and then you like, uh, or is it just like 
trying to do research on the internet in the beginning and then it's finding experts or is it just like completely ad hoc and it just depends? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I, I, I don't have an infinite set of you know, data points on, you know, how I've succeeded in doing this, you know, aerospace probably being the you know only one thus far where I you know, comfortably say that I have a very you know, good understanding of the entire sort of aerospace you know, industry ecosystem, you know, what the upcoming you know, business models are. And if I you know, sort of reverse engineer how I came about it, it was mostly just like spending lots of time with smart people in person, right? You know, I think, yeah, there was some amount of like, you know, reading online or, you know, some amount of like, you know, textbooks, but like that was not where the majority of the interesting insights came from. It was ultimately just like going to a lot of aerospace conferences, practically reaching out to and speaking to a lot of different like aerospace CEOs and just like spending time around people that, you know, thought really, you know, deeply, you know, about the industry. And it's fascinating sometimes how like even people within the industry don't take the time to survey their own industry, right? Uh, you know, I think it was surprising to me that like very rapidly I became more well networked in aerospace than people that were even like working very practically in aerospace because it just wasn't their core focus their core focus was just like execution versus i was like very proactively you know going out to you know try and you know sort of meet everyone learn about their you know philosophies how they thought about you know the industry and eventually you end up like amalgamating a sort of higher level view where you've kind of you know seen seen everybody in it and so yeah I, i'm pretty you know obsessive with the fact that you know right now you know i'm diving into you know some of these new areas around ivf fertility life sciences and like my first thing is just like okay who are the experts that i can talk to what are the conferences that I can go to um, and just like, you know, start to inundate myself and learn, you know, via osmosis. So I think I'm much more of a, you know, I don't know what the you know, right thing is, you know, it's a, is it verbal? Is it visual, et cetera, learner? <laughs> I'm like a like, you know, visual osmosis learner. Like, you know, the, the way that I learn the best is like, having an expert walk me through their paper like i can go read the paper and yes i'll like you know absorb it some amount but being able to like live q a like basically like you know with the you know author is always much more fascinating and i think people underappreciate if you just like have a like you know very inquisitive mind and you know clearly written sort of cold email that explains why you're excited to chat with them almost anybody in the world will like you know hop on the phone with you and you know walk you through you know what they're up to because they're just like so like you know, people love explaining their work, right? You know, this may be being a perfect example, right? I'm always, you know, happy to hop on a podcast and explain what I'm up to. Turns out, you know, even the, you know, top IVF researcher in the world um, is happy, you know, to do the same because people very rarely are, you know, interested and, you know, curious about their work and, you know, dig up, you know, their papers. That's great. That's great. And that is my motivation for, uh, you know, starting the podcast in the beginning. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, does that experience make you bearish on remote? Oh, yeah, extremely so. I mean, I think it's just hard. You know, some of these, you know, conversations require some level of like meandering, um, you know, where and, and just like, you know, spontaneous, you know, connections. And I think it's just really hard. Like, you know, if I were to recreate that aerospace thing, uh, you know, aerospace, let's say like, you know, osmosis period, and I did it entirely remotely, it's just not the same. It feels so much more artificial where it's like, hey, I would like to like hop on a like 30 minute Zoom call with you. But then the Zoom call like needs to have a particular topic or something versus like just sitting down at a conference and like, you know, grabbing lunch and then this person comes over and then this person comes over and you just kind of, you know, absorb and, you know, listen. I think it's just like really, really hard to, you know, create, you know, that sort of experience. That's actually why I think in particular the like, you know, world of remote actually hampers people earlier in their career the most. Cause like, if you're sort of mid stage and you're like a VP of product at like XYZ company at that point, like, you know, you may not be actually interested in like building up your skill set anymore. You're just like pure execution mode. And so, yeah, it's great for like the, you know, VP of product that's 32 married, has two kids like remote. I totally understand why somebody like that would absolutely love remote, but like the hyper ambitious 24 year old that like really wants to learn from them, man, it kind of sucks reporting to that VP of product. Cause like you don't get as much of the spontaneous interaction. Um, and you know, if you're the hyper curious, you know, whatever, you know, 20, whatever I am, you know, nine year old or eight, I don't remember how old I am, 28 year old. Um, 
uh, you know, uh, venture capitalist that wants to, you know, keep learning via these types of, you know, spontaneous osmosis interactions. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's, you know, tough to do that, you know, remotely. Um, to speak of the devil, I am, you know, in an in-person office right now at Ramp, uh, you know, in New York. Uh, and surrounded by a bunch of, you know, 20, you know, my brother's 21 to, you know, 28 year old, hyper ambitious software engineers, product managers, you know, product operations folks that are just outside of this office. And, you know, I can tell you these folks are moving a lot faster and learning a lot, a lot more than people that are trying to do the same thing over Zoom. Definitely. Well, it, it absolutely seems like um, it, there's a lot of legibility problems, right? You know, like the, the, the problems you're working on often are difficult to describe and, and much easier to, to kind of understand in person, it seems like. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious with Varda, was it a top-down approach as a, or was it like you know I want to build a company, a space company, and then I'm going to go out and figure out what you know what's the big, best problem I can solve, or was it you know man, I know manufacturing space is this huge twenty dollar bill on the sidewalk, I just need to go vet that idea. No, yeah, it's very much you know the latter, and um, it it wasn't even like let's say like a vetting of the idea. I'd been thinking of the idea for like almost a decade before pulling the trigger on it. It was actually, you know, in Q4 2019, Q120, before even starting Varda, I was, you know, so convinced that there was an opportunity here that I actually spent most of those two quarters uh, talking to everybody that was working, you know, on the problem. And there were a variety of different sort of like what I'd call more academic type groups um, that had been either publishing papers on it, doing small scale experiments on the ISS. Uh, and I was actually hoping to invest in one of those groups um, and ideally help them scale their work beyond the ISS in a much more sort of, you know, commercial venture scalable, you know, fashion. But, you know, unfortunately, just like could not, uh, you know, find a team that I was excited by slash a team that was excited to actually take that sort of ambitious, more risky approach of moving off of the ISS and potentially not necessarily just relying, you know, on NASA, you know, for funding. And so I actually originally put the idea back on the shelf once COVID hit. Uh, and then, you know, as we were sort of in the summer post COVID summer 2020, uh, you know, was realizing, man, I still am like really excited about this idea. And, I, you know, I honestly more had, you know, I had zero interest in starting a company again. Like I had a lot of, you know, PTSD and frustrations from my, you know, first go around realizing that, you know, maybe I wasn't the best suited to be the CEO of a company. And so if anything, it was extreme, you know, it was definitely not like I want to start a company uh, and let me go figure out what to work on. It was more like, man, I'm so obsessed with this idea and it bugs me that nobody's doing it correctly. And like, fuck, the one thing in the world that I really don't want to do is start a company. But like, <laughs> if this is the only way to solve it, then like, you know, maybe I will. But only if I like put together the perfect founding team, the perfect financing and cap table and like have it ready to go. And I remember thinking at the beginning of the summer, like, you know, you know, June, July, 2020, I was like, there's just no way that like I line all these things up. Like it's COVID, it's going to be impossible to do this. And then by like, you know, December, I had the perfect founding team. I had the perfect, you know, financing lined up, et cetera. And I just remember thinking, I was like, it feels like I am like looking down the double barrel of a shotgun and I know how painful it is to blow my brains out because I've blown my brains out before. And yet again, I'm choosing to pull the trigger. Um, and so, yeah, here I am, you know, a year and a half later with my brain splattered against the wall. And I'm like, why the fuck did I do it? But, you know, <laughs> Some problems are worth splatting your brain against the wall for. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely, they are. I, do you think uh, on the margin, more founders should wait until it's like, man, like, God, like I just have to do this instead of like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, I mean, this is the you know classic feedback that I give, you know, especially to like younger founders that are like, ah, you know, I've got this, they have this like, you know, and I had this too. I had this like mental image of like, oh, I need to be a founder because of like the like status or respect or like, you know, the access that you got to you know, certain individuals or being able to like, you know, talk about, you know, the fact that you fundraised. And it's just like, you know, that was partially why my first company failed is it was like ultimately a problem that I wasn't sort of deeply, deeply, you know, passionate about. And that was sort of the promise that I made to myself after my first company was, you know, the only, you know, if, if I were to ever do this again in the future, it needs to be a problem that is like so 
brainwormed in my head that I know that no matter what happens, if you chop my like, you know, feet off, if you, you know, make it so that like, you know, I have to spend every damn dollar in my bank account, I'm going to care about this problem so much that I will like still do it. Um, and for a long time, I just, I thought I was like, it's no such problem exists. You know what I mean? Uh, but it was that like, exploration of space manufacturing as an investment thesis and then noodling on it over the summer. And I remember there's actually, you know, funnily enough, the way that it sort of transitioned from, you know, idea in my head to, oh, fuck, I might need to start a company to do this was, it was actually like probably like May or June, 2020. And I can like dig up the tweet, but it was effectively like, you know, drawing this correlation between like, you know, the, you know, government is printing shit tons of money. That means, you know, interest rates are going like, you know, crazy, crazy low cost of capital is effectively, you know, zero. Now is probably the best time in human history effectively to like start a deeply, you know, capital intensive, deep tech, you know, company, especially in aerospace. I remember like I tweeted that and I was like, ah, fuck like you know i gotta you know go do this idea because like it's both like the right time to do the idea because like falcon 9 is reusable and starship is coming online and like the capital environments are like perfect right now to basically like start this type of idea um so yeah you know i think more founders should take this approach of like you should be like you know begging yourself to like find a solution to the problem that you want to solve that isn't starting a company and if and only if the only way to solve that problem is to like start a company then one should do it the people that take this approach of like oh man i gotta start a company for starting a company's sake those people all end up like, you know, depressed three years in. Cause it's like, even if your company's like successful, you're working on like some boring enterprise SaaS thing that you can give like zero shits about. The problem is like the moment that you hit any single moment of like adversity, you just, you know, you, you know, surrender at the, at the first, you know, you know, you know, fire from the enemy. And so, yeah, there's just so many examples of this. of just like, you know, even if the first three years, four years are easy. Cause you chose the like hot new web three SaaS social, blah, blah, blah. No company is like smooth sailing all the way through. And so then you're, you know, Ryan Breslow, you know, quitting at the 12 billion <laughs> you know, valuation just when the going gets tough. And like, you know, that's that's not what ends up, you know, making you a uh, you know top tier entrepreneur in the long term. You got you to stick it out. Absolutely. And it's only fun to stick it out if it's a problem you really believe in. That's right. That's great. I, I, I'm curious. What do you see as the, the biggest bottleneck? You know, you work in venture, so you get a good view on this. What, what's the biggest bottleneck to getting more breakout companies? Is it, you know, capital? Is it like smart founders working on the right problems? Like, like, what do you, what's your sense of that? I actually believe, and I think this was Sam Altman that's tweeting about this a lot lately, but I'd have to, you know, go back and look. But it's basically just like a lack of like people who have been trained with high agency. Like, you know, I think, yeah, there's a significant underappreciation by, you know, call it with some level of like intellect, network, you know, access to capital, et cetera, underappreciation of like how much agency that gives you in the ability to like manipulate the world to the future that you want to, you know, see. And I think that's what's mostly lacking. Like it's not for a lack of like Stanford educated computer science grads. There's like a semi infinite number of those. I could probably throw a dart, you know, <laughs> off like this office building here and I'd probably hit a Stanford CS grad. So it's definitely not a lack of that. It's definitely not a lack of capital. There's still like, even with, you know, the current, you know, public markets, there's still like semi infinite capital if you have like, you know, the right ideas. Um, and so, you know, I think it mostly comes to just like this like sense of, you know, agency of, you know, tackling, you know, a hyper ambitious problem with just like the, you know, right, you know, skill set, founding team approach. Um, that to me is like sort of like the the, the lacking founder is uh, the, the lacking factor um, is these like, you know, sort of high, you know, agency, you know, founders that are, you know, tackling something, you know, sort of truly, truly ambitious, not, you know, an incremental, you know, whatever SAS for, you know, plumbers type thing.
And, and do you think that's something we can perhaps modify, like, you know, encourage people to have more agency, give them some kind of hero license? Because you, you found one, right, with Varda. So it, there maybe there's some process or maybe this, this could just be inbuilt. You could just like uh, you'd be a high agency person or something. Yeah, I, no, I, you know, I don't um, I don't think that I had some sort of natural predisposition to agency. Um, I do think that this was something that was um either coached into me encouraged into me or just the fact that you know i uh you know spent got to spend time early in my career with very high agency people um uh, you know i think you know and, and i don't know what the right way to like you know scale that approach is because like by default the whole point of this is that there's like a lack or a scarcity in high agency people and so if the only way to scale it is osmosis <laughs> with other high agency people then obviously it's like a relatively like limited function but, you know, as an example, you know, I kind of skimmed over this in my, you know, original sort of bio introduction, but actually my very first, you know, job in Silicon Valley was the summer of 2012 being an intern at Square. And part of why I even prioritized Square was like, you know, it's not that I was like particularly passionate about like, you know, you know, mobile payments for, you know, cafes. I was particularly passionate about just like working with Jack Dorsey, you know, and this was in 2012 before like Jack is who Jack is today. You know, back then it was clear that he was like a top tier, you know, entrepreneur, but a much more, you know, controversial figure. But I was just so fascinated by the idea of like, I wanted to work with somebody like him, right? And at the time there wasn't like, you know, Elon was still under the radar a bit slash like, you know, maybe I just wasn't as fascinated with him at the time, but I was like, I want to work with this like magnetic, super clearly super high agency, you know, individual. And so I guess like, I was, you know, attracted to agency. And so maybe the way that we would like, you know, scale it is making, you know, if anything, like maybe people criticize the glorification of like, you know, founders in today's day and age. And I do agree that it's like, okay, yeah, maybe people over glorify the Dom Hollands of the world that like, you know, are phenomenal fundraisers, but you know, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily say they're phenomenal, you know, operators, how you maybe make it so that like young people glorify high agency you know people that would be like the way to scale it up because then more of them will want to go work near those high agency people and then they themselves will become high agency via osmosis but i think a like alternate you know path dallion that would maybe was just as smart had just as much access to capital um you know was still in silicon valley but now it was not exposed to like jack dorsey and then keith Raboy and then you know sam altman etc these people that i would describe as like super high agency people that were like extremely influential you know all three of them in my career from ages like literally like you know i was working at square when i had like just barely turned 18 i was like you know 18 in five months or whatever right um you know old all the way through to you know starting barda at age you know whatever roughly you know 26 26 and a half those like you know eight years i had like semi-constant exposure you know to those you know three you know individuals all of whom i would describe as like extremely high agency and so when you have these you know sort of mentors that you clearly see are able to like will something into the world right like you know maybe you know keith being obviously my you know closest mentor you know i you know got to know him basically summer of 2012 when i was working at square and he was the coo um uh uh when when i was an intern at square and he was the coo uh, at square uh and so i got to know him from literally like the like ideation moment of open door through now, obviously, you know, Open Door being a, you know, in my opinion, very successful, you know, you know, public company. I think maybe underappreciated by the public markets, but I think that will shift over time. And that was literally just like completely like, you know, there was no happenstance. There was no like, oh, these two founders accidentally like, you know, Matt, et cetera. It was like, no, he like literally was like, this is the thing. I need to like construct this, you know, into, you know, existence and, you know, literally will it into existence and force it into existence when it may not have like, there's like zero chance that it would have existed or succeeded otherwise. It's not like there were like other people working on things like, you know, Open Door when, you know, Open Door, you know, came together. And so you see that you're like, okay, like, 
I can, you know, I think I can do that. Like, you know, it's, it's not easy, you know, for sure. Like, but like follow the formula. It's just like, yeah, you know, truly believe in an idea. Think about what the ideal founding team needs to be. Hunt those people down, convince them that they should, you know, work on this. Like he spent, you know, almost like, I think like four or five years sort of, you know, well, one, he worked on like the original idea of open door in like 2003 called home run realized at the time the cost of capital was too expensive. Couldn't actually approach it. But then even the ultimate CEO of open door, Eric Wu, he'd actually like tried to recruit for the CEO of open door role three or four years prior. Um, uh, and you know, didn't actually, you know, succeed. And then it was only the second time around of like recruiting Eric, uh, that he actually managed to, you know, convince him to work on open doors. So it was one of these things that like, he clearly just persisted on just like, you know, you know, trying to, you know, will it into reality. Uh, and so it's like when you when you experience that upfront and up close, you're just like, it is very possible to will things into the world through like you know again sheer you know sort of willpower. Um, and so that just made me very convinced that I was like, I can do the same thing with Varda. I'm gonna like will this in existence, and it's gonna be you know painful and take a lot of effort. I'm gonna have to like you know hunt down the exact right people. But it is definitely like you know not impossible. Anyway, it's very long winded answer to I think osmosis to other high agent people is probably the right way um, to uh, to convince the youngins that they can do the same. So perhaps, uh, you know, difficult to solve it at the macro level, at the micro level in your career, if you're a young person, should you try and select, uh, you know, the people you're going to work for, for agency, less than trying to select, you know, whether this company is going to be successful in the long term? Do you think that's kind of an easier metric to select on? Yeah, I think like, you know, I think if there's one, you know, mistake that I sometimes see people make early in their, you know, career is that they like over-optimize, you know, for, what is sort of the hot new thing or the status, et cetera, as opposed to, I think over, op, you know, what I would generally optimize for, which is just like osmosis from high agency, highly successful people. Because like, you know, as an example, like the first like, you know, two years or so of like working closely with Keith, um, you know, not in the, like the square days or when I was running my own company, but when I actually originally joined Coastal Ventures as chief of staff, we're not to particularly like, high status role like you know the thing that i you know uh was joking about with like a founder the other day is like you know i mean parts of that role were very fun of like you know getting to observe you know max lepchin at a firm board meetings now again i was a fly on the wall but like getting to observe that was like such a like you know honor in some ways like the greatest entrepreneur of our you know time and i got to watch like how he was running his company but like the less glorious aspects were of it like i had to fucking you know deliver the you know diet coke during those board meetings too so it's like you know you know is the like person that's like formerly the founder up on like you know yc demo day and now all of a sudden you got to deliver the goddamn you know diet coke um, you know, sometimes I think it's like you got a little bit, you know, sacrifice the ego, you know, in exchange for, um, you know, the, you know, osmosis. And so I think that's the mistake that sometimes people make is they like, and I, and I was there, I mean, like I was the like YC Teal fellow founder dropout, you know, had extreme ego at age, you know, 18 through, you know, 21. Um, and then, you know, at some point, you know, I wish I had been, you know, self-aware enough that I was like, you know, practically sacrificing it, but it was more that just like I fucked up so badly that I was like, well, clearly I probably shouldn't have much of an ego given that my, you know, company failed. <laughs> Good stuff. So it, it's not, that's very practical advice. It's like go find the high agency people, do what you can to work for them, help in whatever way you can, and, and, then, exactly. and then go from there. Good stuff. I, this is a bit of a left-hand turn, uh, but I'm curious at the macro level, uh, do you think venture, you know, when you make a venture investment, how much are you thinking about future fundability? So like, to what extent is venture like a Keynesian beauty contest where you have to worry about, you know, not only like, can these people build this and will the market buy it, but will future funders be able to like provide capital to this? Or is it just too weird that they won't do it? And I'm sure like with some of your work, like with IVF, artificial wombs, et cetera, they may fall in these kind of categories. 
Yeah, you know, a couple different frames that you can you know take to answering you know that question. You know, one of the things that you know we definitely you know think about at Founders Fund and is like the and sometimes you know primary question that we ask um, when investing in a company is why will we uniquely appreciate this and almost every other investor will not, right? It's a you know maybe you know uh, more specific way of asking the like how is this contrarian effectively you know question. Yeah. Uh, now, however, the critical part of that is that. Um, Eventually, for a company to be successful, it must transition from contrarian, you know, to consensus. Um, uh, from when it transitions from an early stage to a late stage company, right? Um, and uh, that is the only way to be successful, right? So every successful company at the late stage is a consensus late stage successful company. Right. Where the most returns are made are contrarian early stage, you know, companies. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that consensus early stage companies can't be successful too. There are plenty of examples in Silicon Valley where a company was effectively consensus from like the earliest stages all the way through. It's just hard to make as many returns on those because typically that means that it's like you know highly competitive, you know, even you know from the you know earliest, uh, you know, uh, financing rounds. Um, so uh, is it, you know, um, is it something that, you know, you need to think about? Absolutely. Because if it is, you know, contrarian enough that it can never get, you know, sort of future, you know, financing, um, then it can never become the consensus, you know, late stage company. Right. Um, so it's something that, you know, I absolutely you know, think about in, you know, practice, let's say, you know, for myself for the last two years, I've tried to take a little bit of like the two ends of the barbell, you know, uh, uh, you know, curve. Um, approach, you know, to investing that I think is at least, you know, so far, we'll see, maybe this is me being a bit naive into the early days of a potential downturn. Um, but over the past few years, I've sort of taken, you know, two ends of the bell curve approach. On one end, I've done the like, highly speculative moonshot deep tech, but largely focused on like, you know, aerospace type investing, right? You know, probably, you know, the the, the biggest, you know, sort of two positions being like Varda, Hadri, and his examples. Right now in this like, you know, current, you know, uh, you know, recessionary, you know, environment, they're actually still largely experiencing, you know, tailwinds, partially because we're going through, you know, expanding defense budgets, you know, the Ukraine Russia situation and a lot of the, you know, customers for those two customers, you know, companies being in DOD, aerospace, et cetera, largely, you know, being fine. So when I thought about those companies, the downstream investors, I was like, okay, these are things where like the downstream investors, I think will appreciate these companies because the like, you know, customers that they will be after will be, you know, relatively, um, uh, all have, you know, relatively, you know, larger budgets actually than expected. And then on the flip side, I invested in a bunch of companies that just had like, you know, great financials, even if they like on the surface kind of had, you know, warts because they had like some hardware or some regulation or it was like something that like investors wouldn't appreciate um, and uh, in the early stages. But as the company got later, if you just examined the financial profile, they were quite attractive. And so there's a handful of, you know, I'd say two to three sort of, uh, you know, series A's that I did, you know, sort of last year, the two that are at least public are, you know, Stenin, this like soil analysis thing, and this company Lula, which is like this insure tech thing anyways both having you know the first you know soil analysis having some you know interesting hardware and market dynamics the second one having a little bit you know regulatory you know dynamics uh you know but both of those are examples where it's like you know again i think contrarian you know at the time uh in that you know people were like ah you know these companies do have revenue you know both companies were like called like you know three million of arr but you know we're not getting priced at you know whatever a billion posts like everybody else was because they had these like you know warts on them they were getting priced relatively reasonably but now as they're getting later stage people are just examining the financial profile they're like well irrespective of the warts on them look they are like you know quite you know financially you know efficient um, you know, versus, you know, I think where people got a little bit, you know, tripped up over the past year is like, you know, sort of, you know, funding these 100x, you know, 110x, you know, SaaS, ARR, you know, businesses, and not thinking through the downstream, you know, financing, i.e., okay, well, at some point, some investor is going to have to invest in this in the future. And are these, you know, 100x multiples going to, you know, sort of like last, you know, indefinitely? Probably not. 
Um, and so, you know, they're in a, you know, sort of much, you know, trickier spot with those investments in, you know, those companies. And so, no, yeah, absolutely. There is a little bit of like a, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, Russian doll effect of like, you absolutely need to be thinking through, you know, what are the, you know, downstream, you know, financing risks. And I think, um, you know, a lot of investors became particularly blind to that over the past two years where there was this sort of assumption that like, you know, in the past two years, if, you know, you had a top tier fund lead your seed, it basically meant that you were like guaranteed that like another top tier fund would lead your series A within like a year effectively. Um, and so people, started to ignore the potential, you know, downstream, you know, findings and risks. So again, you know, maybe I'm being, you know, naive and, you know, I'm going to have a bunch of failures in the, you know, portfolio, but, you know, at least so far, you know, relative, you know, to peers, I think partially because of the approach that I took over the last two years, I don't think, you know, I don't think the things that I've been working on have been, you know, hit nearly as hard. That's great. And going off this question, this is a little bit complicated, but do you think brand really matters in, in venture more than, than people realize. And does that explain because it lets you worry less about future, future financing? In other words, and does this explain why top tier firms do a lot better than all the other firms? It is something like where because, you know, Founders Fund, you put in the seed round series A, uh, they're like, well, that's a positive signal that this is probably a good investment. Does that make sense? 100%. Uh, these things are, you know, uh, venture is very much, you know, a um, the rich get richer, you know, type of game um, in that, uh, you know, even as an individual, like when you start off in investing, if you don't have a hit sort of in your first like three to five investments, it just gets really a lot more painful to actually ever get a, you know, a hit in the future because like you start to experience a lot of like, you know, molasses and difficulty, both the firm that you're at will start to question each individual, you know, future investment more. Founders will be like less interested in working with you because it's like, well, there's no like, you know, positive signaling that comes with it, let alone like on a firm basis. And it, it's a combination of like a multitude of factors. It's not just that like future investors will, you know, be more interested and likely to invest in the company, but it's also literally that it allows the like founder to operate more successfully because even candidates pay a lot more attention to it, right? Like the classic feedback that I always, you know, give to candidates that are on the market is like, you know, don't try and, you know, choose which company is best, you know, because like, you're not a full-time investor, i.e., you know, the goal of a should be, you know, optimizing ideally for, you know, upside in the, you know, company that you choose, but optimizing upside is kind of the investor's job in some ways, not you as the job market. It's the easiest way to just like choose what the, you know, sort of top tier investors are investing in and go work at one of those. Well, on the flip side, as a founder, that makes it so that if I take a top tier investor's, you know, capital, it makes it so that hiring is much easier. Hiring being much easier then allows me to execute much more easily. Executing much more easily then does allow for the downstream financing to be, you know, much, you know, easier. Now, should that be the case? Is that fair? Is that the way that the world should work? Doesn't fucking matter. Like, that is just the way that you know the world works and so i think it's one of those things that you know um uh makes me very grateful to work at a place like founders fund where the alternative or the you know parallel reality where dalian was you know either uh, you know solo capitalist or working not at a founders fund but still is interested in the same things meeting with the same founders it's one not clear that like i would have been able to win the same deals two it's not clear that those you know companies that i did invest in would be as successful because they would have lacked like the brand halo effect um and so you know i definitely uh, am uh, both very grateful to be working at a fund like Founders Fund, but also like I think a lot of people that are entering into the venture ecosystem under you know appreciate the like benefit and advantage. Um, you know I think a lot of people make the wrong call of you know if you have let's say an offer that is like an associate role at a tier one fund versus like a partner role at a tier two fund. If you actually are optimizing for like the long term of your venture career it's pretty rare that like the, you know, partner role, the tier two fund is actually going to, you know, have the better outcome. It's not impossible, but you're just making life sort of much, much, you know, sort of more, you know, more difficult. Um, Because I think a lot of people do underappreciate this sort of like the dynamics of the rich get richer, you know, in, uh, in venture. 
Absolutely. Uh, is it your sense that founders uh, underrate the, the value of uh, brand from top tier ventures or overrated or just kind of properly rated at this point? Um, I think founders uh, correctly rate it, but I think founders are unaware or have a little bit of a lagging sense of what the brands are in that, like, um, you know, the uh, uh, as an investor on the you know inside, it's very clear which firms are performing, which are not, who is, who is not, who is helpful, who is not. Because we just have much more, we're, we're in the market at all times, right? We are Got hearing it. about these rounds happening, this happening, this company exploding, this board member being a pain in the ass to work with, et cetera. So we have much more like perfect information. This stuff only makes it, you know, public sometimes, you know, a year and a half, two years later when, you know, a firm, you know, prevents a top tier, very public founder from like filing a sexual harassment claim against a board member, um, you know, that sometimes only becomes public two years later and then she tweets about it only four years later versus you know when you're on the inside you basically you know see it you know immediately uh and so i think they're you know the only thing that founders sometimes lack is you know i've, I've you know seen sometimes founders make a choice based off of relatively like you know lagging you know brand uh, indicators so i think rated appropriately but maybe aren't as perfectly in tune but you know that's just part of the part of the market is reputation is very much a lagging indicator got it got it i've got uh, one last big question for you here uh and it's a big one. Do you think we'll be able to, you know, escape decadence in the West, this kind of great stagnation, you know, the fertility, the rising cost disease? I mean, like a lot of indicators look like really bad at this point. Do you think it's possible? Uh, and, uh, you know, if so, like what should we – are there any concrete policy proposals we should be thinking about more frequently? Where is and who is John Galt? That's a good <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> I actually, you know, I think – I'm actually relatively, you know, optimistic um, about the, you know, future of the West. I think partially the advantage, in particular, that the United States has, it is, is that it is so much so um, a country that does not have a um, singular identity, right? Like I think the reason why a Sweden or a Netherlands, etc., you know, struggle to both innovate as much and potentially get sucked into this vortex of like, you know, decadence and lack of, you know, productivity and not really pushing the fold is because the identity is of like being a Swede, right? That like, that is the sort of national identity. Americans lack a national identity, which comes with, in some ways, a lot of, you know, downsides of like, you have these like, you know, race wars, extremely divisive, you know, Congress, the point that like, it is, you know, sometimes, you know, unproductive, like it comes with tons of downsides. The flip side, though, is that there is sort of constant competition amongst various, you know, geographies, ideologies um, that allows for sort of like rise to the top of, you know, the best, much more so than anywhere, you know, else in the world. Yes, do healthcare costs, you know, you know, seem absolutely insane. Um, you know, do education costs seem like they're, you know, absolutely, you know, going through the roof? Are taxes in California insane? Absolutely, all of those things are crazy. However. Every single European, when they like, you know, have a major like health disorder, they fly to the United States for, you know, their healthcare. Um, all of the top tier, you know, universities and the top tier research institutes are all in the United States: MIT, Harvard, Stanford, Caltech, etc. America is the only country that is currently like, you know, flying and landing, you know, rockets, you know, in the entire world. And for all these things, you have the counterfactual of like, well, you know, Florida um, has pretty damn, you know, low taxes, is pretty damn open, <laughs> pro-capitalism, you know, pro-growth. Um, and that will eventually, you know, cause some level of pressure. Like, you know, as much as there's a little bit of this like online meme of like Miami versus San Francisco, or is Miami going to be a tech ecosystem? It's like, 
in some ways, I think irrespective of what you decide you're on, you should, I think, be rooting for there just being more competition such that, you know, San Francisco politicians all of a sudden actually start to feel real pressure where it's no longer just a guarantee that they're going to be you know, the default, de facto, you know, sort of, you know, number one, you know, tech hub in the United States. Uh, there's, you know, real, uh, real alternatives that have very different, you know, sort of, you know, policy, you know, approaches. Um, and so I think there will be, you know, obvious, you know, ups and downs and, you know, difficulties. Uh, but, you know, in the grand, in the grand scheme of life, I'm still very, very, you know, optimistic uh, about the, you know, sort of rise of the West in the United States, you know, maintaining dominance, you know, over the next, you know, century, uh, uh, irrespective of, COVID, inflation, geriatric, you know, president, et cetera, you know, I think, I think we'll turn out just fine. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Delian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where should we send people? Where can they find you? Uh, yeah, probably, you know, the easiest is, you know, if you're looking for, you know, more info on Varda, it's uh, Varda.com, V-A-R-D-A.com. Info on me is probably easiest found via Twitter um, at Zabulgar at Z-E-B-U-L-G-A-R. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.